Let's Talk Development, Episode 6. My name is Ali Khan. I'm the Dean currently at the Mushtaq Ahmed Gurmani School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Lahore University of Management Sciences, LUMS. Um, I'm also an anthropologist uh, with a PhD from Cambridge. And today I'm very happy to have with us for this podcast um, the acclaimed writer, Mohsin Hamid, uh, just very briefly introduce him. His award-winning novels are Moth Smoke, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, Exit West, and the latest, which was The Last White Man in 2022. Uh, Mohsin is also part of a group of authors, uh, I think, who really put Pakistani writing on the international map in the last two decades. He spent a lot of time moving between places, New York, London and Lahore as a student and professionally as well. And today we're really going to be talking in this podcast about movement and uh, about migration from Pakistan in particular. All right, wonderful. So Mose, like I said, um, you spent a lot of time moving around between places, um, both as a student and professionally. And of course, recently what has happened is that we've seen people from across the class spectrum migrate to other countries at the kind of level that we've never seen previously. And, and clearly this is something that seems to have accelerated over the last six months or so as our economic woes have deepened. Um, and I was wondering what you thought are some of the leading causes driving the crisis of international migration in Pakistan. And you know, just to qualify the question a little bit further, why do you think that members of Pakistan's elite are also migrating out of Pakistan despite apparently enjoying unique privileges, including access to jobs and other economic opportunities. I was uh, recently on a flight uh, to Italy. Uh, an old friend of my wife's from university was getting married. And, uh, and she had come to Lahore for our wedding 18 years ago, and she was getting married in Italy, so we went uh, for her wedding. And our flight from Lahore to Istanbul was late. Um, the time was changed. It had been a two hour connection. It was reduced to a one hour connection and, um, uh, it left Lahore late. It arrived there late. It was taxiing. We thought we're definitely going to miss our connecting flight on to Bologna. But what then happened was that, um, we, we basically went through, uh, uh, you know, went through the jetway onto the, into the airport. And a lady was waiting there and saying, you know, are you connecting to Bologna? This is a Lahore flight in Istanbul. Are you connecting to Bologna? And we said, yes. You know, how wonderful this amazing service just for us. Um, she said, okay, just wait here. And it turned out that there were like 30 people on this Lahore Istanbul flight who were connecting to this small plane to Bologna, much to our surprise. And we were whisked to the airport and sort of whisked to security. And um, it, was, it was my wife, I think one or maybe at most, Two other women, um, about you know, 20, 25 men, including myself, um, whisked to the airport and onto this plane to Bologna. And when we got on the plane to Bologna from Istanbul, it was this plane that was full of not just Pakistanis, but uh, people from Africa, people from elsewhere in South Asia, people from you know, all over the world, really. Um, but, but very substantially non-European looking folks, you know, people who um, appeared to be in were speaking languages that one associates with, with uh, Africa and, and Asia. 
and um, and you know, landing in 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 Italy on this incredibly international uh, flight, uh, disproportionately um, with young men, um, you got this this distinct sense that you know something was going on, uh, that there is this incredible movement, and so I just tell the story as a little bit of background because. Um, whereas I might have thought that you know my wife and I were the only people from Lahore who were connecting to Bologna, it turns out lots of others were, and then from all over the world. And so this is happening. This migration that we're seeing is happening in the context of um, global movement of people, and also very much a Pakistani movement of people, because the vast majority of people on my flight didn't appear to be going on holiday; they appeared to be people going to work, um, and. Uh, uh, and you know, I think what we are seeing right now is a combination of a few different things. One is in wealthy countries in the West, there just aren't enough young people. Um, average number of children uh, born to an Italian woman is just a little bit north of one, and replacement is uh, is above two. So there are not enough young people in Italy, which is uh, creating this demand uh, for young people from elsewhere to come and, and do work, but. But separate from that, of course, there's a push factor, which is people, you know, feeling that they have to leave. Because uh, one thing we didn't see a lot of on this flight to Bologna were, for example, Chinese. There weren't, you know, fifty Chinese people uh, or people who looked to be Chinese uh, on our flight. In fact, there was probably none that I can remember. And um, and so it's not the case that every country with a large population is producing this this sort of flow. This is something being produced by countries like Pakistan, by countries in Africa, by countries in Latin America. Um, and uh, it's, I think, uh, down to the fact that we simply aren't creating enough jobs in our own countries for our plentiful youth populations. Uh, leaving aside the question you asked about, about the elite, which we can come to, but at the most basic level, um, there aren't enough good jobs um, in most of the world uh, for young people. And, and China is the exception. And, and the reason why China is the exception is because China has managed to create hundreds of millions of manufacturing jobs that have absorbed large numbers of, of, of young men and women who've been uh, displaced from what was uh, rural life, uh, but found gainful employment within China. But almost no country in the world has done anything similar. A few Southeast Asian countries have done that. But Pakistan has completely failed to do so. Uh, and many other countries have completely failed to do so. And so the flights all over planet Earth are full of uh, particularly young men, but young people trying to get out of places like Pakistan to a place where they can make a decent wage. So Mohsin, uh, uh, I, I just wanted to pick up from that story. I mean, did you get an idea of what kinds of jobs these, these migrants were looking for? Because you know, in the past, we've always been a labor exporting uh, nation. And we've seen a lot of people go to the Gulf, for example, initially also to the United Kingdom. Um, but did you get a sense of what kind of jobs these migrants on, on your flight were looking for in Bologna? Well, so um, if you imagine that whole region between Florence and Bologna and in Tuscany, um, I was unfortunately, although the novelist in me you know, would certainly have liked to strike up a few conversations and, and you know, narrow down... Um, uh, some stories. But, but what I can say is when you left the airport um, and you went into Bologna and you went into Florence and you went into the small towns around there, you saw lots and lots of young South Asian 
uh, uh, and African, um, particularly men, some women, um, doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, bartenders, porters, uh, the desk person at your hotel, um, the guy serving you pasta in the restaurant. Mm. Um, so much of what I think, you know, are, are the entry-level uh, working class jobs of a service economy, which that part of it largely is, um, is filled by migrants. And I imagine if you went to a, to a factory, there'd be many more, this, this um, niece of the bride, uh, uh, um, niece and nephew went to uh, the American school in Florence. And apparently after Italians and Americans, the other largest nationality um, uh, in, uh, in that uh, area uh, are Chinese Italians. Um, because uh, some time ago, there had been some Chinese investment in some factories near Florence. Um, and Chinese engineers and uh, uh, you know, managers came to these factories and, and created such a large diaspora that the, that the Florence American School or Florence International School um, uh, is now has a very large Italian Chinese population. So, so I think whether it's, it's even managerial in some cases, but certainly factories. Um, and, and it's quite interesting as well because, um, you know, they, these people, uh, I speak a bit of Italian and, you know, they certainly, uh, for the most part, speak Italian better than I do. Um, and, uh, uh, are, you know, as Pakistanis are everywhere, really, um, uh, uh, becoming a fabric of, of that part of the world. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, in, in jobs that you wouldn't even expect necessarily, you know, um, in, in a, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the person, uh, seating you in the restaurant or the person behind the bar, um, or the tour guide, you know, taking you to the academia, um, it's, it's full of bases, uh, and Africans and, uh, it's quite, it's quite, you know, something to see. Yeah. Um, so there's also an, uh, a contradiction here in, in that you mentioned that Places like Italy have got uh, not enough young people, uh, not enough dynamism maybe in the economy, and yet uh, there's a there's a strongly right wing government that is now in place in in Italy, um, and a lot of that is also being played out in other parts of Europe. And you know, I didn't realize until I did more research on this that you know Pakistanis now don't only go to the United Kingdom or to the United States, but you find them. In Italy, you find them in Denmark, you find them in Spain, you find them in Norway as well. And I was just wondering about your thoughts on on that dynamic, where where you know you're seeing more and more people going to these places, and yet there's a very strong reaction uh, amongst the public, it seems, um, in these countries as well. Well, you know, you even see Pakistanis in Thailand, for example. Um, I don't have a lot of hair, but the young man who uh, cuts my hair. Uh, was telling me that, um, you know, here in Lahore, uh, was telling me that uh, uh, he, you know, a friend of his had gone to Thailand and is cutting hair there and is doing reasonably well. And should he go? And this is the amount that was being asked of him to make a deposit for the visa so he could go. And what did I think? Um, so it's not just in a sense going to even the usual suspects of Britain and America or the slightly less usual suspects of Norway and Italy. But in fact, to countries that a generation ago, we might have thought about as being almost our peers, you know, mm -hmm. countries like uh, uh, Thailand um, or two generations ago, certainly we would have thought of as being our peers. Um, so, so people are going all over. Now, um, in terms of the backlash that we're seeing, it's a very interesting phenomenon 
So the right-wing Giorgia Meloni government in Italy is utterly failing to reduce migration. Um, uh, the uh, right-wing government of Rishi Sunak in Britain is presiding over what looks like 700,000 immigrants uh, mm. entering the UK this year, uh, you know, which is 1% of the population of the country, um, which is quite something you know, for, for a party um, that championed Brexit and that was driven in large part by the desire to cut off the flow of migrants you know, from the EU and, and from elsewhere. Uh, that wasn't the only reason, but certainly an unimportant reason uh, motivating many voters who voted for Brexit. Um, again, a right-wing Rishi Sunak government uh, utterly failing, you know, uh, to control migration. And I think, you know, there's, there's I guess, uh, in the same way that you see um, uh, right-wing governments in the West utterly failing to uh, control the import of drugs. You know, it's not, um, it's not that migrants should be, you know, compared to drugs as a kind of scourge of society. But the two are similar in that there's a huge amount of demand which is driving these things. It's not that the you know, Colombian farmers one day decided to launch a fantastic marketing campaign that convinced Americans to buy cocaine. It was that a gigantic American cocaine habit um, fueled the development of, of, of narco states across Latin America because these drugs were so lucrative. And in a similar way, there is such a desperate need for these workers. Um, in societies that are aging so rapidly, who's going to take care of the elderly people? Who's going to fill the factories? Who's going to pluck, you know, the the, the fruit? Um, who's going to man the hotels? And and who's going to work in the, you know, as a nurse in the hospitals? These will be migrants. So um, so the demand side is enormous, and I guess what we're running into is this is this clash between the um, professed desire of these right wing governments to really stamp out migration. And the deep structural need that these societies have for migrants. So either they will become societies that um, that succeed in closing off migrants, but at the cost of leaving their increasingly retired populations without care, without health care, without um, uh, you know, uh, the sort of amenities that their population wants. Uh, or they will have to make, to some extent, some kind of peace with migration. At the moment, what we're seeing is, is really the most fiery rhetoric we've seen in a very long time, combined with enormous flows of people. It's a, yes. it's a very strange combination. Yes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, let me move uh, a little bit on to the second part of the question, which was, you know, we are also now seeing, I think this is something that is uh, deepened in the last few months, as I mentioned previously, elite flight. So a lot of people who... Um, you know, certainly had uh, unique privileges and access to jobs and economic opportunities in Pakistan uh, now appear to be looking for some or any kind of exit strategy. Now, it's one thing for manual laborers and factory workers and, and the service sector to, to, to look abroad because we really haven't, you know, created the jobs that, that you were talking about. But, you know, I'm beginning to see a lot of people who are highly educated um, and who initially were, you know, fairly okay in Pakistan now looking for an exit strategy. And that clearly is going to have um, very significant impacts on, on the country itself as well. So I wonder if you could touch on, on that a little bit. Well, 
you know, partly, of course, there is something going on at the moment. I mean, the, the rupee has, has collapsed to half of its value of, of two and a, or two and a half years ago. We've, we've never really seen the rupee plunge like this before. Um, we also see um, a complete deadlock uh, at every level of society, whether it's in the judiciary, uh, in the democratic uh, political parties, um, in the relationship between uh, uh, parliament and, and, and the democratic setup and, and the military, um, in the functioning of the bureaucracy. Uh, in almost every area, we see that Pakistan is, is stuck. And um, we've had you know, a, a year of almost no growth, perhaps negative growth. We've had uh, incredible amounts of inflation. Um, and above all, we've had uh, uncertainty uh, and the feeling that um, that it is no longer as easily possible to buy off the system. In other words, that there's a randomness and predatoriness in the system from which, you know, uh, even the highest of the elite uh, is not immune. Now, it, to a certain extent, this is not new. You know, Pakistan has been uh, shedding, um, you know, people since I was a young man and uh, many of my relatives, you know, cousins went abroad to study and never came back. Uh, when my aunts and uncles have birthday parties in Lahore and we show up, um, oftentimes we'll be there as their nephews and nieces, but their children will be nowhere uh, around because they don't live in Pakistan and they live in Europe and they live in America, and they live in you know, the Middle East and elsewhere. So... It's not that this is entirely new. Um, you know, Pakistan has been shedding uh, bright, well-educated people for a long mm -hmm. time. But Pakistan could be, I guess, somewhat reliably counted on to hold on to many uh, or most of those um, whose source of income was not primarily intellectual capital, but just actual capital. In other words, people who had lots of money invested in some kind of business in Pakistan um, mm -hmm. returned to a family business and were um, fairly confident that their family business would generate enormously more uh, a profit and uh, a better quality of life than what they could have gotten for themselves with a job abroad, even a very good job. Now, I think, um, uh, so if you divide the elite into those who primarily have intellectual capital and those who have you know, genuine uh, economic capital, um, uh, that second group, the genuine economic capital holders, they too now seem to be very, very uncertain um, and, and considering, you know, moving out and, and trying to move out. And I think that, to a certain extent, is unusual. We haven't seen that in quite some time. We do see it periodically. I mean, I'm old enough to remember uh, the, you know, the, the post-nuclear test uh, freezing of the dollar accounts in Pakistan and people panicking and, uh, you know, the, the flock of, of, of BCCI and um, uh, a sort of panic amongst the moneyed class in Pakistan and people thinking we should get out. And of course, in the 70s, after the you know, Bhutto nationalizations, there was something similar. So these things do happen. It's not that it's, it's never happened before, but they tend to happen, you could say, once a generation. And it seems that we are at this moment in that once a generation moment, where even those who have enormous amounts of capital in Pakistan are still thinking that perhaps they aren't safe their money isn't safe, their property isn't safe, their livelihood isn't safe, um, and they should get out. And that, of course, is a, is a you know, very grim uh, indicator. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to people recently who have said that this kind of uh, uncertainty is something that they haven't seen since uh, 1971, really. And uh, clearly, we need some degree of 
uh, of political and economic stability for for this this flow to 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 stop a little bit. Um, so I wanted to move um, to another point that you mentioned, and that was kind of push factors as far as migration is concerned. So recently, um, it was a very tragic incident where this former Pakistani female field hockey, hockey player Shahida Raza uh, died in a shipwreck on the coast of off the coast of Italy while trying to immigrate to the country. Um, it's it's an incident that has a lot of issues to unpack. There's this whole thing of push factors. She was also uh, a Hazara, part of a sort of minority. Uh, she was also a single mother. Um, and really, uh, I wondered if you had ideas about, you know, whether the government can can do better in these areas in order to try and prevent the kinds of tragedies that 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 have occurred. Well, I think these push factors are strong. Um, a niece of mine, uh, my cousin's daughter, um, is is pretty much the fastest uh, female swimmer Pakistan has ever produced, and she often competes at the national, international level and sometimes on international, um, uh, in international competitions, uh, you know, she'll go with a team to some uh, other place. And um, on more than one occasion, she's told me of people, you know, not showing up, um, that they go to represent the country. And then when the event comes around, they, they fled the, uh, the place where the athletes are staying and, and uh, you know, one presumes uh, claimed asylum or tried to find a job in whatever country they happen to be. Um, and this would be places like the UK, but also places like Azerbaijan. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not just that, uh, this happens in, in, in the UK and, um, and that's quite astounding. You know, these are people who've spent an entire lifetime working to hone their skills and to compete at the international level, you know, the best, uh, swimmers, athletes, sports people that Pakistan ever produced. And, and some of them think, you know what, I, I need to just forget all this and try making it from scratch in this place where I, you know, presumably know almost no one or know very few people. Um, so the pushback is very strong. Now, what is causing this pushback? Uh, you know, one element, of course, is um, our failure to produce enough, you know, good jobs. I mean, Pakistan uh, really has not industrialized. Um, you know, we, we haven't uh, 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 generated the tens of millions or, or 100 million, you know, manufacturing job that could presumably uh, you know, give give uh, large segments of the young population, um, you know, a, a career and a, and a step up to a different social class. Um, and nor have the service sector jobs in our cities, um, you know, been enough to absorb these people. Um, interestingly enough, India has also come nowhere close to generating the number of, of manufacturing jobs that it that it it needs to produce. Um, but Pakistan, of course, has done has done you know worse. And, um, and so th there, is the, there is this lack of jobs. But I think it's, it's more than that. I think that um, in Pakistan, there's just such wild uncertainty. What is going to happen? Um, what is going to happen at the level of the country? What's going to happen at the level of the economy? And what's going to happen to you? You know, if you have a car accident with the wrong person, um, if you have, you know, uh, uh, if you have the wrong last name or the wrong, you know, religion or the long whatever, um, if you, uh, if your politics run the wrong way, um, you know, it, it feels that Pakistan is a state that is incredibly predatory, you know, for its population. And it's predatory at a level that, um, increasingly no one has protection from. 
you know, in the 1980s, uh, 90s, you know, maybe even the 2000s, um, you know, one could imagine that if one was, you know, reasonably well connected, et cetera, that you, one could navigate the predatory state. That's no longer the case. You know, um, if, if some arm of bureaucracy or some uh, nefarious mafia or some, uh, you know, uh, uh, depraved militant group or just some, you know, powerful person who happens not to like you decides to make your life miserable, you know, they can and will and often do. And so I think that feeling of being helpless uh, has really pervaded Pakistan. No one has any, you know, respite from this feeling of helplessness. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, at this very moment, some of the most powerful people in the country uh, are discovering that, that they too are helpless, you know, when the state is turned against them in a particular way. So in that context, it's, it's very hard for anyone to feel safe and secure. Um, and in the absence of feeling safe and secure with an economy that doesn't seem to be doing very well, uh, the push factor really runs up and down the entire uh, you know, strand of society. Many people will tell you, for example, many very well-off people in Pakistan, it's too late for me, but I'm telling my kids to never come back. And um, you know, that's, that's a, a tragedy. Uh, it's a tragedy for, for you know, uh, the country. Um, it's a tragedy for families. It's a tragedy for, you know, in, in so many levels. Uh, I don't think it's something which is irreversible. But I think that, um, you know, the ad hoc approach that we've had to ha building our country, you know, um, trying democracy for a few years, then some hybrid thing, and then sort of tossing it out, and then the next run, doesn't work very well. You know, you need to sort of somehow build sequentially on a relatively stable foundation. Um, and we are repeatedly failing to do that. We seem to make the same mistakes over and over again. You know, those of us who were in Pakistan in the 80s during the Zal Haq dictatorship, remember this. And then remember the sort of attempts at democracy in the 90s and the Musharraf dictatorship, and then what seemed to be the very uh, promising start that the PUP and uh, PMLN you know, were making uh, post-Musharraf to, to have a democratic transition of power, to build institutions, which you know, came undone for reasons that I think we all know, uh, which has led us to our current impasse and, and sort of the disastrous state of Pakistan today. Um, you know, somehow we need to find a way to build a lasting, uh, you know, lasting institutions, you know, parliament, our media, our judiciary, you know, civil military relations. Um, and yet we fail again and again to do this. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like this uh, uh, Sisyphus type of situation where you roll the rock up the mountain and it comes all the way down and you go back down and you roll it back up. Um, at some point, one hopes that that will change. But at the moment, um, I think the fact that people are so dispirited is everybody can feel Sisyphus's rock, you know, rolling over and crushing Sisyphus and crashing down into the valley once again. Yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right. This feeling of helplessness and, and kind of hopelessness is, is what seems to be pervading uh, at the moment. Um, safety, security inclusivity of large swathes of the population has has not been uh, really something that the state has has achieved and you know from from what you've said right now and i just wonder is there any any cause for optimism i know you came back to i think lahore in 2009 and i wonder how different you feel between 2009 and now, um, I know 2009 also was a very difficult time um, with spiking terrorism. But 
you know, I mean, how do you feel between this this period of time that has passed? Well, I think that um, uh, like many people, I feel uh, you know sort of more depressed and more pessimistic at the moment than I can remember having felt in, felt in a very long time. That said, you know, being uh, almost fifty two years old and having spent about half that time in Pakistan, um, I've seen how these things come and go, and it's entirely possible that we will, you know, once again sort of find our footing, stabilize the situation, and you know, begin to move forward. Um, I, I'm not sort of writing Pakistan off and saying that you know it's game over for us, but um, uh, you know, but the challenges are becoming increasingly acute. Uh, and you know, we we um, our our sort of breathing space uh, to make these mistakes is is I think getting smaller and smaller. Uh, you know, among the optimistic things, I um, have lectured at universities around the world, but I've never actually taught a course. And uh, and this spring, um, uh, I I uh, assisted uh, Bilal Tavik Tanvir in teaching his uh, creative writing course at, at Lumps. Um, and so I would show up for about half the classes and, uh, and, and sort of help Bilal teach those classes. And, um, uh, and I was, you know, blown away by just how smart and creative and interesting and, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, dynamic, uh, these students were. Um, and when I've spoken at universities across Pakistan, I, I, I almost always am incredibly impressed, uh, by the kind of young people that I meet. But even, you know, in, in cities like Lahore, um, outside of elite, you know, uh, top universities like Lums, um, if, you, if you sort of go around and, and look at um, how people, uh, young people in Lahore are, and I'm talking about working class young people, uh, people whose, you know, parents uh, went to work, you know, work uh, on foot or on a bicycle, and these young people now have a motorbike. Um, and these young people, you know, um, dress in a way where it's, uh, in a sense, they dress like a middle-class young person, you know, really anywhere in the world might dress or certainly anywhere in Pakistan. Um, and, you know, when you chat with the person, um, uh, you know, taking your order uh, in the McDonald's drive through or uh, your taxi cab driver, you know, uh, as you go around town, um, or uh, the uh, the person manning, you know, the the uh, uh, sales counter, the, the the cash desk at uh, at a grocery store. Um, it's quite clear that there's been an utter transformation um, in the skills and human capital of of this group of of young people. Um, they are, you know, incredibly more literate, incredibly more worldly, um, uh, utterly more professional. Um, and, and of course, when you go to small towns all over Pakistan, you see that things are changing and that, you know, um, uh, uh, the, the Koka in a small town in Punjab, um, today, uh, is, is far more advanced than the Kokas in Lahore were when I moved back to Lahore in 1980. So, you know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit strange. I mean, there clearly is all kinds of progress that is happening at the same time. Uh, it's not that Pakistan is, you know, unmitigatedly this sort of disaster. It's just that I think the scale of the progress is not commensurate with the scale of the need. In other words, we do see uh, young people, incredibly bright, incredibly articulate, incredibly professional, uh, whose parents 
you know, would often be illiterate. Um, uh, uh, but we don't see, in a sense, enough work for these people. Um, we don't see um, uh, this phenomenon happening widely enough. You know, uh, if cities like Lahore and Karachi and Peshawar and uh, Islamabad, etc., um, are these little lakes of development in Pakistan, uh, where in a way we are proceeding uh, at a level similar to you know Southeast Asian countries. Um, there is, of course, a huge half of the population that's still rural, uh, which is not proceeding at the same pace. So I guess um, on the one hand, I suppose what I would say is, is that there, there is incredible potential in young people in Pakistan. And, and, and people are clearly much more educated and, and productive than they were in the past. But, but you know, that isn't enough. We require a state that makes that more widespread and that gives these young people something they can harness their uh, you know, ambition and potential to. And we right now, we lack that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, absolutely you've hit the uh, nail on the head. The enormous potential and talent that is is present in Pakistan, particularly amongst this burgeoning youth uh, population, um, is something that we really need to ensure is not squandered. At the moment, it is being squandered, and it's particularly difficult uh, when you see these young people actually move abroad and make enormous successes of themselves. Um, and it's sad that that Pakistan as a country is not being able to nurture that 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 talent. Um, yeah, and that's focus, exactly right. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. that the, the, the same people when they go abroad do do well, which is what drives so many of them to go abroad. They know that they'll do better um, abroad. Yeah. But but I think in a way, um, in in a sense, we we have kind of the worst of both worlds in Pakistan. We we have a state that um, isn't particularly effective in giving people what they need, um, you know, security, jobs, education, et cetera. It's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's one of the laggard countries in the world at providing these things, not the worst, but certainly not at the middle or in the upper, you know, quartiles. Um, it's somewhere, somewhere well south of, of the global average. Um, uh, so we have a state that's not particularly effective at giving people things. At the same time, we have a state that has a rapacious attitude towards its own people. Uh, that that prevents people from doing things, that makes it impossible to get a driver's license, that harasses you about you know how your house is built, that um, uh, makes it difficult you know to to really do anything. Um, you you have this incredibly bureaucratic, rent-seeking state that doesn't give very much, and that I think is a terrible combination. It would almost be better if the state sort of, sort of uh, either if the state became a state that actually delivered for the people, you know, uh, sort of in the sense that, that China or many other countries, um, you know, uh, all over Asia and elsewhere are delivering for their populations uh, with good schools and, and uh, basic healthcare and all the basics of, you know, a, a, a plan for, for, you know, uh, marshalling the water resources of the country, et cetera. Um, uh, Either you would have a state that did those sorts of things, or potentially you could have a state that, that didn't do those things very well and let people get on with doing those sorts of things. Um, you know, uh, Pakistan is an incredibly entrepreneurial people, mm. uh, but, but our state, in a sense, is the worst of both worlds. Neither does it provide, nor does it leave alone people when they try to do things themselves. It sort of, uh, it is simultaneously crushing any independent action by its citizens and not delivering for its citizens. 
So, um, so whether it's somehow we find a way to dramatically ramp up our state capacity, or we find some way to sort of radically strip back our state's ability to, to restrict people from doing things. Um, but we need to find some solution. I, I had always in the past thought that the solution had to lie in more state capacity. Um, but uh, uh, that's sort of, you know, I guess what my politics is like and how I would imagine myself sort of in the, in the West as being very much, you know, uh, left of center. But in Pakistan, when you think of, you know, what could actually be done, um, you know, sometimes I think that, that it may be also a matter of stripping away uh, aspects of the state that are really there just to extort from the population. Um, and let people, you know, figure things out for themselves. Uh, if you're not going to provide, then at least don't get in, let, let people get out of the way of people who are providing for themselves. Um, and I think that that clash is, you know, something that's very peculiar to us is that we live um, in a state that doesn't provide much, but we don't live in an ungoverned place. We live in a place where there's oppressive regulation of everything, whether it's you want to get a, you know, a lost ID card uh, found or uh, you know replaced, or you want a driver's license, or you want you know, um, a vaccination certificate or whatever. Some of those things have been improved recently, but, but, but there's so many examples, you know, uh, you want your uh, electricity connection repaired or whatever, where um, uh, nothing can be done, um, you know, unless, unless bribes are paid. And, and that, I think, is a horrible state of affairs. Yeah, I mean, migrants work very, very hard wherever they go. I mean, they're entrepreneurial, as you mentioned. Um, it's a tough life if you're a migrant. And yet, you know, back home, as you mentioned, we've made it really impossible for the same people to to flourish. They, you know, we don't value hard work. We don't recognize it. We don't recognize commitment or, or, or creativity. And as a result, people just uh, don't seem to have the, the, the choice and it's better to move abroad then. But yeah. Just one last thing on this is, is that yeah. you know, at the most basic level of justice, yeah. um, you know, what happens if you encounter injustice in Pakistan. Um, if you are not a very well-connected, wealthy person, um, and even if you are, but, if, but certainly if you're not, and you go to the courts seeking relief for your mm. uh, misfortune, you present yourself into an incredibly predatory situation where the police and the judges and the court officials and everybody else um, uh, uh, sort of has you at their mercy. And, and so nobody wants to deal with the court system in any way um, if they can possibly avoid it. And, uh, you know, that's an example of, of you know, we talk about uh, our courts and we often talk about, you know, what is the Supreme Court doing? What is the Supreme Court doing? But, but the Supreme Court is sitting atop of this, you know, uh, incredibly dysfunctional uh, uh, court system in Pakistan. And, um, and the average person, if you were to ask them, you know, can you go to the courts for relief, would surely say no. Uh, uh, you know, that's an example of, of just how broken the system is, or the police for that matter. You know, if somebody has stolen something from you, can you go register an FIR, have somebody, you know, have some investigation take place? Almost certainly not. You know, if you register the FIR, you know, will they register the FIR? What will the police do to you in the process? Will they sort of come after you? Will you find yourself in this draconian system? Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a system that makes the population utterly helpless. Um, and I think, you know, thinking about those sorts of fixes are very important. Like how do we make it that the police actually respond to the needs of the population and don't prey upon them and the courts and, and the bureaucracy and the tax system and everything else. Um, all of that 
is, is in a sense, a colonial enterprise where the citizens of, of Pakistan really are colonized, you know, by their own state um, uh, and face this extractive state as opposed to a state that, that represents them and serves them. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think has deepened in the last four to five years that we become more aware of, certainly if you live in, in, in Lahore, this is the case, is, is um, you know, environmental changes, pollution, the increasing natural catastrophes and climate change. And I was wondering if, you know, if you felt that these kinds of issues would also have led to an increase in, in people migrating out of Pakistan. You know, we've also had, of course, massive floods and we've had extremely hot summers recently. So there have been these, these uh, extremes of, 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 of weather. Um, just wondering whether that would have also added to the push factors. Well, I think, I think it is adding to the push factor. And I think it's adding to it in multiple ways. So in Lahore, the air quality is catastrophic, you know, uh, often in the worst one or two cities in the world. Um, it'll take, by all likelihood, you know, years, uh, if not a decade or more, off the life of, you know, lifespan of, of many or, or perhaps even most, you know, Lahoris on average. Um, and it's a problem that uh, we know there's a solution for. Uh, people try to complicate this problem and say, oh, well, you know, it's it's factories and this and that and the other. Um, but, uh, and of course, it's, it's multiple things. Um, but it's also very simple. We have, you know, pretty much the worst quality automotive fuel on planet Earth in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, we have refineries that produce standards of fuel that are no longer sold really anywhere. Maybe five or six countries still sell this, this stuff. And, you know, per liter burnt in an internal combustion engine, produce hundreds of times the particulates that more modern fuels and more modern engines will produce. And so Lahore, which has nowhere near the number of cars of you know, a place like Los Angeles, which of course was synonymous with small before mm. was going on. We have nowhere near the number of cars as Los Angeles, has enormously worse air quality because of, in a sense, a regulatory capture by our uh, uh, oil refineries and our petroleum uh, you know, uh, mafia. Um, that subjects us all to this horrific air quality. And of course, there's other things. There's, you know, there's brick kilns and there's, you know, crop burning and those sorts of things. But, but we were all there uh, during COVID when the city was locked down and suddenly you could see the Milky Way and, you know, there the were birds and bees and butterflies everywhere. And it was like we lived in this, this verdant garden, you know, uh, sort of Icelandic, you know, air quality uh, because there were no cars on the road. So it can be fixed, you know, in, in, in a week if we actually get rid of the pollution. But it's an example of, you know, one of these areas where there's clearly a fix, but where the system is designed to continue to reward those who are um, uh, effectively, you know, uh, polluting and killing their, their fellow citizens. Now, um, that's a very dangerous situation, the air quality thing. But, but I think water is, um, is much more uh, significant. Um, and, you know, we are in one of the most water stressed countries in the world. And, um, our country really is held together, um, uh, as, uh, the provinces that are, you know, part of the, uh, Indus river system and its tributaries with the exception of, of Balochistan. Um, and, uh, and so, um, this water system 
is 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 the lifeblood of Pakistan. It's what feeds the you know a quarter billion of us. It's what binds the country together. Um, and it is in a state of profound disrespect. Disrepair. You know, my grandfather was um, uh, a uh, an engineer in Wapda. You know, he uh, studied in the UK and he came back and he built you know canals and dams and this type of thing. And um, at the time, we were at the cutting edge of human irrigation. You know, there were places, there was Pakistan, you know, and there was California, and there were a few other places which had such a deep expertise in water management, uh, which built, you know, this fertile area out of what was, you know, uh, semi-arid uh, scrubland, really, a lot of it. Um, now, subsequent to that time, uh, you know, my grandfather passed away a generation ago. Um, and he you know, retired generation before that. So, you know, in the last 50 years, but certainly the last 25 years, we've kind of let those skills wither away. And we look upon the waterworks that are you know, all over Pakistan, you know, almost in the way that, you know, you might imagine somebody looking at some technology built by aliens. You know, we've got some crude idea of how, to, how the thing works. And we sort of, you know, tweak it a bit from here, here, you know, here to there. But we, we don't have really any profound societal understanding of what that thing is. Um, it's like if, if the Egyptians suddenly appeared and, and, and saw these pyramids and thinking, how could anybody build this thing? Um, uh, whereas, of course, they had the skills to build this, you know, 4,000 years ago. And, and Egypt today, of course, could build the pyramids again if they chose to. But we have lost so much of our skills in this area. And we have, beyond that, lost any societal understanding of, of how to manage water. We have no idea whatsoever. And so as a very water-stressed country, when too much rain comes, we have a system that, that, that floods you know, enormous amounts of, of the country, can't capture it and can't protect people. And then, of course, when uh, inevitably dry periods are going to come, we don't have anywhere near enough storage for the water we have. We have you know, very water-inefficient farming, very water-inefficient you know, urban use. Um, we uh, are a former you know, Silicon Valley of water. Um, that has now, you know, uh, that's now uh, looks on it the same way we look at, you know, Harappa and Mejodaro with some sort of, you know, uh, puzzled, uh, you know, how could they have made cities with underground sewerage and grid layouts, you know, 4,000 years ago? We can't do that today. Um, we're looking at our whole water system that way. So I think, you know, the, the, the desperate need for Pakistan to think, you know, very holistically about water to take it incredibly seriously and to figure out how we're going to manage it um, is at the heart of, of whether this country does well. And I think, you know, if we can figure out how to manage water and how to manage power, I think Atif Mia has talked about Pakistan should become a global hub of battery and solar panel manufacturing. That seems like a very good idea to me. We should also be a global hub of, of efficient water use farming. Um, you know, if we do things like this, we can actually prosper and thrive. But I see very little evidence that we're doing that. And if we don't do it, uh, the ability of our country to sustain its quarter billion and growing population will be uh, impaired. And we will see migrant flows out of Pakistan that dwarf the ones that we've already seen to date. Uh, I think on that note, Mohsin, that um, I'd like to thank you for this very insightful, incisive and wide-ranging discussion on migration and the many things that sort of come into it and and are related to it. Um, I've learned a lot during this uh, uh, this podcast. Um, so thank you so much for 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 spending the time with us and and illuminating uh, a lot of um, your thoughts on on this issue.